Good morning. Uh, my name is David McHale. I'm one of our pastors here. Um, I'm going to be reading out of uh, the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 5, verse 1, going through chapter 6, verse 13. And if you find yourself reading from the Pew Bible, that's on page 44. And if you're new or you don't have a Bible, uh, that is our gift to you. Uh, feel free to take that Pew Bible. Hear these words from God's word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many. And you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past shall, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least." So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the, the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Good morning. Thanks, David, for reading that for us. Get to continue our series in Exodus today. I'm very excited about that. It's amazing to just sit under the reading of God's word and get yourself caught up into this ancient story. And so I hope that's what we do this morning and we see what the Lord has for us in this. One of the best decisions that Whitley, my wife and I made as we were awaiting the arrival of our first uh, child last year As we thought about what we might need for the coming baby and the nursery, one of the things we prioritized high on our list was getting a good set of blackout curtains for our nursery. And that was a great decision. (laughs) Those things are amazing. Um, They, we've, we've experienced this when we've gone to other people's houses who are friends of ours with our daughter and inevitably she doesn't sleep as well because the blackout curtains don't black out the sun as well. Now, even in the midst of the day, we get a lot of sunlight on the front part of our house where her room is and nothing. It's pitch black in there and she's snoozing without a care in the world most of the time. <laughs> but the blackout curtains convince her that it's time to go to sleep. They put her in that environment of darkness, even when the sun is shining bright outside. 
And in this next section that we're going to study this morning in the book of Exodus, the curtains of despair black out the hopes of the people of Israel. From their vantage point, inside the dark room of 400 years of slavery and continued worsening oppression, they are unable to see God's promises to their ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this passage forces us to wrestle with the same question that the Israelites are asking here. How can we continue trusting God when the blackout curtains of discouragement, despair, and doubt keep us from seeing the reality of what God has promised to do in the lives of his people? How can we see when despair is at our doorstep? Well, these chapters address that question in three movements. Move from despair to hope to perseverance. And so those are the three movements we're going to use to walk through our text this morning. Despair, hope, and perseverance. Now first, to understand the depths of the people's despair to where they go here at the end of chapter 5, we have to put this, this passage into the context of what Benjamin preached for us last week in chapters 3 and 4. You see, in chapters 3 and 4, God comes to Moses He reveals his name to him. He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And he says, I will deliver your people from Egypt. The time is now. I will come through you and deliver the people. And Moses, at the end of chapter 4, goes to the elders of Israel and he tells them this. So this is chapter 4, verses 29 and 31, directly preceding chapter 5. This is what it says. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. You see, the people who had been given the promise way back with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that they would live as God's chosen people in a particular place and would receive his blessing. The same people that then was enslaved under the hand of the oppressive Egyptians for 400 years finally get a glimmer of hope. Moses tells them that God has revealed himself, that he will deliver them. The curtains open for a second and light pours in. The people rejoice. They worship. God has seen our affliction. He has heard our cry. He is real. He does care. He's faithful to his promises. And it's in this confidence that in verse 1, Moses marches into the court of Pharaoh and pronounces that famous line, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And this is where, with the thrust of the story, we would expect Pharaoh to say, okay, clearly God is moving. Go, be free. But listen to Pharaoh's response in chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. 
And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says, last time I checked, I didn't know this Yahweh. And even if I did, who does he think he is coming into my domain and telling me what I should do? Doesn't he know that I am God and this is my territory? Egypt is my domain, my turf. Pharaoh takes this as a direct assault upon his rule and sovereignty and divinity, as he should have. And so much so, this gets him so riled up that as verse 6 says, that same day, Pharaoh doesn't let the people go, but he inflicts further burdens on them. In the same day that Moses goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I'm not having any of this. We need to crush this right now. And he makes the people's burdens harder. Now, brief aside, this verse and and a few things in these verses set up the conflict that we're going to see play out for the next 10 chapters of the book of Exodus. This dynamic of Pharaoh saying, I am the Lord of Egypt, and God saying, I am the Lord, they are going to come head to head, and we are going to see battle break out between the two of them. And we're already getting hints of this in these verses. But in direct opposition to the word of God, the word of Pharaoh asserts his dominance by grinding down the Israelites until all their hope had been pressed out of them. He commands them to make bricks without giving them straw. Now, in order to feel the the thrust of how hard this would have been, let me get into the weeds of how you make bricks for a second or how they would have made bricks. Some of you, this is going to be really interesting. Others of you, like me, will have to force yourself to care, to understand God's word. But making bricks without straw would be similar to laying a lot of concrete without rebar. Straw was what reinforced the bricks so that when you made them and they dried and and you put them into a structure, they didn't easily crumble. You needed straw to make strong bricks and strong structures. And so to feel the force of this command, and some of you won't have to think very hard about this, picture being on a construction site and being one of the people responsible for the concrete work on a given project. And all of a sudden, your project manager comes to you and they say, hey, you still have the same quota, you still have to meet the same demands, but we're not going to give you any rebar for your concrete. In fact, you have to go find raw steel, make rebar, and then figure out how to get it here and get it in the concrete and get the stuff done in the same amount of time. Now, for those of you who are in construction, this probably feels a little bit like what the supply chains have been like with COVID. You're like, it feels like I'm trying to make bricks without straw. But your deadline remains the same. And every day that you don't get it finished, not only do you not get paid, but you get beaten. This was a crushing, impossible task for the Israelites. So much so that if you look at verse 12, you'll see that directly after they get this command, they scatter. It's chaos. It's panic. They realize they can't do it, and they spread out, running to try to figure out what they're going to do. And this all leads them to the despair and doubt that we hear expressed in their words to Moses in verse 21 of chapter 5. They say to Moses, 
the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You say, Moses, ever since you showed up, things have only gotten worse for us. Now I want us to stop and think about the reality of their suffering for just a moment. This would have been horrific and disorienting for this people. This people who had been enslaved for 400 years, banking on God's promise that he would deliver them, had just received word from their elders that God's deliverer is here and that they are going to be free. But the very same day that their deliverer appears before Pharaoh, they are subjected further. They're put under further oppression. It's like a little bit of light is let through just to have the curtains slammed shut on them. God's involvement for them only looks on the surface like it's making matters worse. And yet, the people should not have expected Pharaoh to release them right away. So so part of what Moses communicated to the elders there at the end of chapter 4 from the Lord, we see revealed to Moses in chapter 3, verses 18 and 20, which is that Moses and the people should not expect Pharaoh to let them go right away. The Lord says there, it will be difficult. He says there, Pharaoh will have to be coerced with a strong arm in order to let the people go. It will take some time. So the people should not have been surprised that God's deliverance was delayed. And yet, they didn't know that this was going to mean further crushing defeat and suffering. The people should have known, and yet they're understandably disoriented and discouraged by the severity and scope of what they're going through. And you see, I think where this draws a connection with us is that when we, like the people of Israel, are surprised by our suffering it can cause us to easily lose sight of God's promises. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you feel like the Israelites. You feel like the curtains of disillusionment and discouragement and despair are keeping you from hope in what God has promised. Maybe you just got baptized and you feel weeks later that the Lord is far away from you. Maybe you've experienced a prolonged season of victory over a given sin in your life only to have that sin reassert its dominance and control over you. Maybe you've seen the positive sign on a pregnancy test and rejoiced and cried tears of joy together only to go to the doctor's office weeks later and cry tears of sorrow as they confirm it was in fact a miscarriage. Maybe you've fallen back into despair in your marriage after you've thought that a certain problem that you were dealing with was already dealt with and it comes back up again. Maybe you thought you were growing closer in your relationship with God only to be flooded with streams of doubt. And for all of us who are in those circumstances this morning, this is where we have to appreciate the Bible's realism as a gift to us in times of suffering. You see, on the one hand, this passage 
is incredibly comforting to us just by acknowledging that the swiftness and severity of suffering can't help but take us by surprise. The Israelites didn't know that they were going to be subjected to worse treatment. But on the other hand, the Bible reiterates time and time again that suffering for those who follow the Lord, for the people of God, suffering is inevitable. It's part of our course in life. We heard it in our call to worship this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. We hear it reiterated again in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. There's no way to avoid surprise at how serious our suffering can be. Suffering is almost always just like a punch in the gut. You keel over. There will be times of discouragement and even despair as you follow Jesus. That's what this text is telling us. But it's also saying that if you know that a blow of some kind is coming, you can help, it can help you prepare for that blow to land. God does not promise us that our lives will be easy as his people. He promises us the opposite. But it's his grace that he tells us this so that we can remain clear-eyed in our suffering, that it is inevitable, and so that it can help us to keep from being disillusioned when it comes our way. Now, you might hear that, and you might think, okay, but isn't that just fatalism? Isn't that just resigning yourself to the fact that things are going to stink? I, I mean, wh- where is the hope in that? Just to say, this is how things are going to be, so get ready for it and take it. And we start to see hope emerge in this passage for us and for the people as Moses turns to the Lord. When suffering, discouragement, and, befa- and, and despair come upon his people, Moses turns to the Lord. We see that in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. It says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, Moses was not perfect by any means. Just if you look at some of the content of these two verses of his prayer, you'll see that they're intermingled with doubt and with this false humility that we've talked about plagues Moses' character. But notice the contrast between what the people do with their suffering and what Moses does. In in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 5, when the people are squeezed by their suffering, they run to Pharaoh. Moses runs to the Lord. When the people run to Pharaoh, they're met with harsh condemnation. You're lazy. Work harder. Keep going. When Moses turns to the Lord, God responds with words of resounding hope for his desperate people. God graciously speaks to Moses to remind him of who he is and what he has promised 
If you read those verses at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that God reminds us that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the same God who promised to bless the people long ago and bring them into their land. And God reminds them here that he's not just the God who makes promises, but that he is the God who also keeps them. In verses 6 through 8, there is a string of seven I will statements where God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And almost all of those statements are already fulfilled by the time we get to the end of the book of Exodus. God keeps his promises. But even more than what God has promised to do for his people, notice what God emphasizes most in this speech to Moses. What does God think his downtrodden people need to be reminded of most? We see it four times in verses one through eight of this text. In verse two, I am the Lord. Verse six, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Verse seven, you will know that I am the Lord, your God. And at the very end of all of these wonderful promises, he declares again in verse eight, I am the Lord. God knows that his discouraged and despairing people need to be reminded of his name who he most deeply is, his character, what makes him who he is. You see, he recognizes that Israel's trust ultimately is not just in a set of promises for the future. In their discouragement, Israel needs to be reminded more than what is just coming for them. These promises, they need to be reminded of who God himself was, his very identity, they need, they need to be reminded that he is, I am who I am. The God who is exalted and powerful above all. The God who is powerful even above Pharaoh. But the God who is also intimately involved in their lives, hearing their cries and keeping his promises. Now, on a wedding day, the bride and the groom pledge themselves to one another. Now, as you watch a wedding ceremony unfold, or as you've been a part of one yourself, what is it that gives the bride or groom confidence as they make that commitment to one another that the other person will stay in it and hold up their end of the deal? Now, I know as Christians, we're supposed to say the gospel. Like, uh, we understand that. But let's set that aside for a second and say, what else gives us confidence in that moment? Well, the bride hears the promises that the groom makes on that day to have and to hold in sickness and health till death do us part. But I think it's more than just the promises that give that bride confidence that her groom will see her through this life. The bride doesn't ultimately trust in the promised actions of the groom in as much as she trusts in who the groom is as a person proven by her history with him in the past. She's seen how he has acted towards her as they've dated and got to know each other and as they've courted and been engaged preparing for marriage, how he's loved her faithfully. And this past action reveals to her who he is. 
his character. And because of this, because she knows who he is, she will cling to the fact that he is the type of person who will keep his promises. She trusts him ultimately because he is trustworthy. He is a trustworthy man. And when we are drowning in despair, and when we are brought to our knees by the trials of this life, what we need to know most is the character of our God. We know the wonderful things that our God promises us, right? The, the, the grandest of these, that we will live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth without despair and without discouragement. But it is easy for our present despair to block out those promises and make them so hard for us to believe. It's easy for us to doubt God's trustworthiness. And it's in moments like this that we must press in to know God in the present by recalling to mind what he has done in the past. Like the bride with her groom, we have a shared history with God as his people that we can draw on to be reminded that he is trustworthy. Like that question that we asked at the beginning, in order for us to continue trusting God when the blackout curtains of discouragement and despair and doubt keep us from seeing what the reality of what he's promised to do for us. In order for us to keep trusting him, we need to be reminded of what he's done in the past in order to know who he is for us in the present. And we have seen decisively how God has acted for his people in the past, ultimately in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. You see, at the cross, I am, the very God who revealed himself to Moses, takes on human flesh and experiences the suffering of his people. Jesus Christ is the I am of Exodus. The God who says over and over again throughout this book, you will know me, says that again in Jesus Christ at his death and resurrection. You will know the Lord. And the cross and resurrection scream to us in our despair and in our discouragement that our God is not just a promise maker, but he is in fact a promise keeper. Because Jesus took our sins to the grave with him and raised from the dead so that we can enjoy life with him forever. The cross and resurrection are proof that God keeps his promises. The, the cross and resurrection tell us that God ultimately is someone who is trustworthy, that his character is something we can rely on. Brothers and sisters, if your present reality of suffering and troubles and despair is keeping you from trusting the promises of God, remember the trustworthy character of our God. Look back to the cross and the empty tomb and see there the God who keeps his promises to his people. He is faithful. The death and resurrection of Jesus is like a shining light into your life that when everything else 
is pitch black shines forth hope for you. But our passage isn't over yet. After this glorious reminder to Moses about his character and his promises, look at how Moses and the people respond to the Lord. It's in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He tells them all that God just told him about himself. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Did you see that phrase in verse 9? The people don't listen to these wonderful glorious truths about God because they are utterly broken down by their oppression. They can't pick their heads up off the floor. And is this not a realistic picture of how badly suffering can beat us up and kick us while we're down? The scripture is so true to our circumstances. Many of you might be sitting here this morning and you're trying to focus on what the scripture is saying, but you can't because you come in here so beat up this morning. You're not asking the question whether God sees or knows or cares. You've resigned yourself to the fact that he doesn't know, he doesn't see, and he doesn't care. And yet... Even for those of us who have resigned ourselves to that fact, and even for the Israelites here who are convinced that God doesn't see, know, or care because of what's going on in their circumstances, God doubles down on his promise. In verse 13, he reiterates to Moses and Aaron, even in the midst of the people's deep darkness, their primary mission is to bring this people out of Egypt, even when they can't see it, even when they are drowning in despair, God is still committed to their salvation. God is still committed to his promises to them. Church, let this be an encouragement that God understands your suffering and is gentle with you. Some of you are broken in spirit. Some of you can't lift your head off the mat. And the wonderful thing this morning is that God is still I am for you. He is still keeping his promises towards you. He is still using everything in your life for your good and for his glory. Even when you can't trust him, he is still trustworthy. And for us as a church, this is also a call to be patient 
and gentle to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of suffering. Suffering can be so hard. And sometimes as human beings, we grow impatient with one another. We say, can't you just get over this? Hasn't there been enough time? And yet God understands here that suffering can beat us up. And so as a church, we must show the caring heart of God to one another and be patient and love each other. Even when for us who are suffering, the light is impossible to see. But I also want to encourage us together this morning to persevere in remembering God's character and promise. This highlights for us just how hard it is to see God truly and clearly when you are in the midst of horrible circumstances. And so whether this morning you are in the midst of those terrible circumstances or your life is wonderful and everything is going well, we must strive to remember who our God is. Remember what he has done in Christ for you, how he has taken your sin and suffering upon himself and rose from the dead so you could be made alive. Remember in your own past how he has shown himself faithful to you in times of discouragement. We need to press in to know the Lord. We need to persevere in remembering who God is and what he's done. Because even if we're not suffering, these times of remembrance and drawing to mind the character of God, of knowing the Lord, prepare us for the inevitability of when suffering does come our way. And this is something that we do together. If one of your brothers and sisters in Christ has a broken spirit and cannot see God's promises through the pain, bear with them. Stand in the gap for them. Take them to the cross and the empty tomb. Lead them there. And together, let us persevere in remembering who our God is and what he has done. And this is precisely what we get to do now as we come to the Lord's table together. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that God is a God who keeps his promises. This meal reminds us of what God in Christ has done for us in the past. In dying on the cross, Jesus gave his flesh and blood so that our sins might be paid for and all the wonderful promises of God towards us might come true. And this meal also holds out the future promise of what our trustworthy, faithful God will do for us. He will bring us to a meal, to a wedding feast, where we will celebrate that sin, suffering, pain, and death have been eradicated forever. It points us to remind ourselves of God in the past, but also it draws our attention to the promises of God for the future. And so as we come to the table together, as we trust in Jesus through this meal, I pray that Jesus would encourage us by his spirit and remind us of his faithful and trustworthy character. And I pray that as we come to the table this morning and are reminded of these things, that it would rekindle in us hope in the promises of God, even in the darkest places of our heart. 
So if you would pray with me, and I'm going to invite Noah back up, and then we'll get ready to take the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you that you have, in your wisdom and in your grace, inspired passages like this to be in your word. Passages that are realistic about the hardships of life, but also speak truth about who you are and what you're doing in the midst of them. So Lord, I pray this morning that as we come to your table, as we feast on Jesus Christ together, that you would help us to know you more and that that might shore us up and prepare us for times of suffering that are coming our way or if we are in the midst of suffering, that it would open the curtains just a little bit for us to see the light of your promises. And so, Lord, we come to you now. We thank you and we love you. Amen.